you all looked so relaxed in this short break we had. And it brings a question to mind we have to look at. What's the difference between the states we go into and out of? What's the difference between those states and what unites those states of being, states of functioning? Right. We began today with looking at, this morning, we're looking at what Dongshan said when a monk, when he asked the monk, what is the most tormenting thing in the world? And the monk said, hell, and Dongshan said, no, not recognizing, not realizing the great matter. Not realizing the great matter. Having gaps between states of being, states of mind, or seeing only different states of being. That is the source of misery the source of suffering. That is the arising of what we might call hell. And then I also mentioned that Master Longji said, today is not your first arrival here. You've always been this way. And yet you must go ahead and enact it. It's like saying this is a pure land, but it is up to us to make it so. It is like saying you are born a Buddha, but unless you realize it and actualize it, it would be a great shame. You will die an unrealized Buddha. Which means you're just not going to function in your <coughs> life. And that is a shame. This is case 52 in the Shuraroku, Kaoshan's reality body. The introduction, <clears throat> those who have wisdom can understand by means of metaphors. If you come to where there is no possibility of comparison or similitude, how can you explain it to them? Kaoshan asked Elder Day, the Buddha's true reality body is like space. It manifests form in response to beings, like the moon in the water. How do you explain the principle of response? Elder Day said, like a donkey looking in a well. And Kaoshan said, you said a lot indeed, but only 80%. So Elder Day said, what about you, teacher? Kaoshan said, like the well looking at the donkey. The verse. The well looks at the, sorry, the donkey looks at the well. The well looks at the donkey. 
Wisdom is all-pervading, all-embracing. Purity pervades with abundance. Behind the elbow, who discerns the seal? In the house, no books are kept. The loom threads aren't strung, the work of a shuttle. The pattern going vertically and horizontally. The meaning is distinct of itself. There are many challenges in Zen training. Many that we encounter along the way. But I think that one of the more persistent challenges is the perceived divide between absolute and relative. We encounter it from the beginning and even years later, even deeply into practice, it's st still, even after some experiences of realization, still it shows up. Yes, but. Yes, but. I often say to people, this is a buttless practice. It's one word, one letter, one breath contains everything. And there is no, well, but in my case, blah, 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 blah. There is no your case. We come to practice from reality that is defined by form and a society that is primarily obsessed with appearances. And that seems to be one side of the spectrum. On the other side, on the other side of that, of our unfolding practice, there is what we call absolute formlessness, emptiness. And it expo the practice exposes us to experiences that are beyond common spectrum of what you might call familiar reality. You know, we, we may not be able to define these experiences, but they are real in the sense that it is happening. We don't have a name for that, a definition. But it's happening in a different sense. We come in from confusion and worries about everyday life, what we create, from the fragment and reality we come from. And we encounter the clarity that is being experienced through and in our practice, through staying in the unknown, the undefined, through being more and more comfortable remaining there, remaining nowhere so to speak. And these are great experiences, you know, and I'm sure that most of you have experienced some level of vastness. I mean, they do thrust us into moments of tranquility and peace. Maybe for the first time in your life, you get a glimpse of how it feels like to be in a non-agitated state actually be at ease. 
But that very quickly becomes another source of dichotomy or birthplace of a new divide. This is why often people say or ask, how do I incorporate these moments of bliss into my chaotic and demanding life? Sometimes the more peaceful it is in Zazen, the more chaotic life can seem. In contrast, in comparison. Which may be make it, making it worse. So how do we find the clarity in the midst of dealing with raising children, paying the bills, keeping up with work demands and so on? How do we bring the wisdom of the Absolute into the relativity of form? That's a very common question. I hear it a lot on my end of this practice and you probably ponder that once in a while. It's a common question. It's a question that we, we shouldn't avoid asking. Now we do have to be careful in the way we go about searching for an answer. Otherwise, we end up more confused and further trapped. So on one level, we must ask the question. On another level, it is actually what is called gouging a wound in a healthy flesh. It's very painful. So how about changing that? the way we look at this dichotomy. Instead of asking how to merge the absolute and the relative, how about examining the assumption that lies behind the word merge? When asking about how to unite, we hold on to the idea of separateness, obviously. Right? If you did not think that there is a gap between subject and object, how would you ask or why would you ask about bringing them together. It wouldn't make sense to even ask a question. So there is a hidden assumption. So we have to identify that hidden assumption that lies behind the question or the need to unite. And we have to take the time to look and if you do if you do, you see that behind the question hides a thief wearing a mask. We talked about thieves last Sunday. You remember? Right? If you did not turn to one of your senses, as we say, the gang of six thieves, right? If you did not turn to one of your senses, how would you justify asking about a gap between the life you have and the life you want? And look at it. Every time you ask this question, we ask this question, it is relying on a feeling, a notion, which is born out of the way we interact with reality, which is inevitably through the senses. Maybe not so much in Zazen after some time, but then Zazen ends. And you enter back into the chaos. And in that chaos, 
if we don't bring another way of interacting with reality in that chaos, that's what we perceive. It's chaotic. In her book, Mysticism, Evelyn Underhill, which I've quoted here before, writes about the flimsy ground on which we rely on and create false sense of reality, which is based again on our senses. And she says, let us begin at the beginning and remind ourselves of a few of the trite and primary facts which, are all, which all practical persons agree to ignore. That beginning for human thought is, of course, the I, the ego, the self-conscious subject which is writing this book, or the other self-conscious subject which is reading it, and which declares in the teeth of all arguments, I am. Here is a point to which all we all feel quite sure. No metaphysician has yet shaken the ordinary individual's belief in his own or her own existence. The uncertainties only begin for most of us when we ask, what else is there? Which at this point is the beginning of practice for us. What else is there? Well, to ask this question, there is a certain level of arising of bodhicitta. Otherwise, you will not even ask this question. Or again, otherwise you will not be sitting here. The arising of energy that we call bodhicitta, this kind of energy of wanting to awaken, knowing that there is, there is another way to exist, another way to be, to function. And she says, to this I, this conscious self, imprisoned in the body like an oyster in the shell, as Plato said, come, as we know, a constant stream of messages and experiences. Chief amongst these are the stimulation of the tactile nerves, which result, what we call touch, the vibrations taken up by the optic nerves, which we call light, and those taken up by the ear and perceived as sound. What do these experiences mean? What do these experiences... Those are amazing questions that we have to keep open. Rather than say, I know what it is. I know what I hear. I know what I feel. I know what I see. The first answer, she says, of the unsophisticated self is that they indicate the nature of the external world. It is to the evidence of her senses that she turns when she is asked, what is the world like? It is cold, it is wet, it is cozy, it is lonely. With a, an amazing simplicity, an amazing simplicity, she attributes her own sensations to the unknown universe. She attributes her own sensations to the unknown universe. I know what I see because I see it. I know what I feel because I feel it. It must be this way because I feel this way. 
The stars, she says, are bright. The grass is green. For her, as for the philosopher Hume, reality consists of impressions and ideas. It is immediately apparent, however, that this sense world, this seemingly real external universe, though it may be useful and valid in other respects, functionally speaking it is, cannot be the external world, but only the self-projected picture of it. It is a work of art, not a scientific fact. It is a work of art, not a scientific fact. We function in this world as if it is all scientific fact. The big difference between seeing reality as a work of art, which means it's open, it's vast, it's undefined. Maybe, maybe many interpretations, but still, no one interpretation is more real than another interpretation. And she says, the evidence of, this, of the senses, then, cannot be accepted as evidence of the nature of ultimate reality. Though useful servants, they are dangerous guides. On this basis, not the ends of the earth, but the external termini of our own sensory nerves, are the termini of our exploration. And to know oneself, is really to know one's universe. We are locked up within our receiving instruments. I think this is a good, uh, it's a good read before looking at any koan, or every time we go to practice. We are locked up within our receiving instruments. So what we feel is not what is, and we have to accept that. Terrifying as it may be, we have to accept that, because if we don't accept that, practice cannot begin, or true practice cannot begin, because we practice with lots of assumptions. To keep it open is to keep it open and to keep it free is to keep it free of ourselves. Keep it free. While you may be feeling trapped, it's fine, it's natural. Still, keep it free. Trust that it is free. And then, trust that it is you. But then, of course, we encounter the gap again. It may be free. I am not. It is empty. I am full. It is not defined. I am very defined. And on and on. That's how we do it. That's how we create gaps. And as long as we think we know, what we think we know is forming the walls of the jail. That is the obstacle. Maybe there is no obstacle, but that becomes the obstacle. Very quickly. On the other hand, when you recognize that it is really unknowable, 
we begin to function as an expression of that pure knowledge. That is why it is said that knowing it by birth is best. Knowing it by learning is next. Knowing it by birth is best. That's where we begin. I know. I am knowing itself. And it does take trust, obviously, because you know, we talk often about trust because we don't feel this way. Because we don't feel this way, there comes the need for trust. I don't want to come to this Zazika yet I show up is a result of trust, isn't it? I don't feel like coming, but here I am. Well, if you did not trust, you wouldn't be coming here. I don't feel like coming. You know, this is too much. I'm tired. I, am, I have other things to do. Better things to do. That is how we feed knowing. Showing up to practice is how we feed not knowing. There are many seeds in us. All of us. We have all the seeds that are possibly given, handed down, generation after generation. They're all there. The seeds you choose to water and nourish are the seeds that will grow and flourish. The seeds you choose to not will not grow. It doesn't mean that you cannot change your mind two, three, five years into practice and begin to water other seeds. They're still there. If you water them, they will grow and they will rob your practice and you will decide to drop it. Not only that, it will make perfect sense. That's why we have to watch. We have to be careful in the way we practice. So we have to agree. We have to recognize and agree. Recognize that the thoughts are false. They are not based on or in reality. For thoughts, concepts, beliefs. Or maybe at least admit that there is a possibility that you don't know that we don't know. And it's okay to not know. So Evelyn Underhill is talking about how we perceive reality and in this koan, this koan is offering a way to examine reality, the body of reality. This is a side note, you may remember. Mahayana Buddhism describes three manifestations of the Buddha also known as the Trikaya. The Dharmakaya is the body of reality which encompasses all things as truth itself. Unborn, undying, beyond form, beyond formlessness. The Sambhogakaya, the body of bliss or reward, which is referring to the state of at one moment when a person attains realization and is living an awakened life. The Nirmanakaya, the body of the Buddha as a person through which he expounded the Dharma and helped other beings realize themselves. Help us realize ourselves. So in this case, in this koan, Kaoshan 
brings up the Dharmakaya, the body of reality. And he's using a line from the Golden Light Sutra and says, True reality is like vast space. It manifests as form in response to beings. And then he asked Elder there to explain this principle of response. But in, as all coins, the question is not really to Elder there, it's to us. How do we perceive it? How do we see it? How do we merge? How do we function? How do we function based on not knowing reality? You may remember Kaoshan was the foremost disciple of Dongshan and was instrumental in establishing Soto Zen. Some say that the name Soto consists of both, at the beginning of both names. There are other theories that Dongshan, that Soto actually, and or, or, it's called Kaodong, was the name of the mountain in which Dongshan practiced and taught. But it doesn't matter. We have the name and that's the name. So the first meeting between Kaoshan, Kaoshan and his teacher, Dongshan, that first meeting already shedding light on what is brought up in this car. Upon meeting Kaoshan, Dongshan said, what is your name? And Kaoshan said, Benji. That was his family name. And Dongshan asked again, now tell me what is your transcendent name? You told me your name. What is your transcendent name? Kaoshan picked up on it right away. It's very sharp. He said, I can't tell you. I can't tell you. Dongshan said, why not? And Kaoshan said, there I'm not named Benji. And then Dongshan realized that this disciple was a great Dharma vessel. So Kaoshan here is asked about his name, and he's truthfully saying, My name is Kaoshan Benji, right? As you would if somebody's asking your name. You have a name, an address, financial state, family relations. And from that relative position in reality, you are glimpsing into the absolute dimension of reality. From that, from the chaos, looking into clarity. That's what Elder Day is saying. The donkey looking at the well. I think we feel like donkeys sometimes, so it's probably very fitting. The donkey looking at the well. Right? To see oneness of all things and yet is not yet, not yet having it penetrate our everyday life. So to verify the level of Kaoshan's understanding, Dongshan is asking, what is your transcendent name? And Kaoshan says, I can't tell you because I have no name there. There are no names, faces appearances. 
But here is a question. How far is there from here? There I have no name. Here I have a name. There I have no shape, form, difficulties, challenges. Here I have challenges. And that's what we do. We jump between here and there. I'll go there for a while, relax, and then come back to pulling my hair out. Jump back and forth. So it's a good answer. What Kaushan is saying is a good answer, but it's still a donkey looking in the well. There is still a name and a no name. There is still here and there. Existence and no ex non-existence. Now Kaushan, after that studied state, he studied with Dongshan for many years. And he said that he realized the secret seal of his teaching. So he deepened his realization. And later on, he finished his studies. He was about to leave. Dongshan said, where are you going? And Kaushan said, I'm not going to a different place. Dongshan said, you're not going to a different place, but still there is going. Kaushan said, I'm going, but not to a different place. I'm going, but not to a different place. The big difference from this, from the beginning to this, from when he came to study with Dongshan to that. At this point, he greatly deepened his understanding. He was no longer holding on to any dichotomy. He didn't need dichotomy. I'm going, to, but not to a different place. Is the actualization of the whale looking at the donkey. The whale looking at the donkey. The donkey looking at the well, 80%, as Kao Shan said. You said quite a bit, but only 80%. So, would you say that the second part of it, what Kao Shan said, is the remainder 20%? Would make sense to, to think this way. Well, what about the saying that even Shakyamuni Buddha is only halfway there? That's 50%. It's even lower. What do we do with that? 80% is good. 80, if you want 85, it's fine. If you feel better about that. It keeps it open. keeps it open. And we have to remain challenged. When your day-to-day -day activities are no longer seen as separated from the moments of bliss in your zazen, the question about merging falls away. Everyday appearances are realized as manifestations of that which is beyond appearances. Beyond is not there. Beyond is here. 
And then beyond is not even here. Because there is no here. But that's okay. Beyond is here. That's good enough, actually. Because it keeps us going. And at this point, clarity is not seen in opposition to obscurity. It's not divided. The verse says, wisdom is all-embracing. It pervades with abundance. Now, Yunyan, who was actually Dongshan's teacher, once said, there is a son of someone's house who can answer any question. Dongshan came forth and said, how many books does he have in his house? And that, again, that's very logical. Yunyan said, not even a single letter. Dongshan said, how can he be so knowledgeable? Yunyan said, night and day, he never sleeps. Then Dongshan asked if he could pose a question. Yunyan said, even if I could answer, I wouldn't. Even if I could answer, I wouldn't. I think it's good. Again, it's good to see the great teachers posing such questions. It's good to see that they were not always free. The realization was not always so deep. They practiced and practiced and practiced and deepened. You know, wisdom is not accumulated as we want to believe. How many books does he or she have in, in the house? Big library. It's not accumulated. This is why Jiashan said, producing understanding from hearing, you color it in your intellect. It's the same with sight, same with any of our senses. We color it with our intellect. We color it as soon as it appears in the mind, in the thinking mind. It is not what we think, and the six senses cannot perceive it completely. So how about expressing the fundamental instead of trying to formulate ideas of it? How about expressing, trusting, and then expressing that which is beyond? Expressing it now, to the best of our ability, today. Just today, to the best of our ability, to express it. To opt out to expressing it rather, to try, rather than trying to dissect it and analyze it, as we often do. The practice should trust us to express it, experiencing and expressing and not to the library. We do read, it's good to read. It's just that the reading should be a pointer to an experience or experiences.
delusion, realization, here and there, obscurity and clarity. Those are just words. They don't mean anything beyond what you hear. You hear a word, you see a concept, mental construct. As soon as the word is heard or the sight is seen, can you not stay there? Can you go beyond that? Just beyond that. It's not that far. That will keep it open. The last two lines of the verse say, the loom threads aren't strung, the work of a shuttle. The patterns are going vertically and horizontally. The meaning is distinct of itself. I think our friend Jika here knows what a shuttle is. I don't know how many of us do know what a shuttle is. That's the little thing that goes back and forth in the loom. It threads. So there is the horizontal threads and then there's vertical threads and the shuttle passes it through. It actually looks like a shuttle. It's interesting. Um, look it up. So the patterns are going vertically and horizontally. The meaning is distinct of itself. What happens when you start to mess with the pattern and you start to pull the threads apart? You can't see the pattern anymore. Can you say that the pattern is, can you attribute the beauty of the pattern to more to the vertical than the horizontal threads? That would be ridiculous, right? You wouldn't do that. You would just use the garment. You're going to pick it apart, it's going to fall apart. And then what? Then it's a mess. Why do we gouge a wound in a healthy flesh? Why raise waves when there is no wind? Why put eyebrows on chaos? I think it's amazing how we create unsubstantiated questions and then drive ourselves nuts trying to answer them. We create the complication and then try to disentangle. We mess up the threads, the pattern, and then we look for the pattern. We pull apart the form and the formless. We do it. How about not doing it? The pattern of the fabric is formed by perfect integration of the vertical and horizontal thread. The pattern consists of many threads that together, together, create functional unity in our lives. Functional unity. The fabric of life is also integrated perfectly to form a functional dance between the threads of form and the threads of formlessness. This is why the verse says the meaning is distinct of itself. How will it function if you dissect it into pieces? 
And you've heard many times, the meal has long been cooked. It's done. This is why I asked you this morning to sit from there, to sit from, from trusting that it's complete. You are complete, just as you are. Sit from there, or sit on that, however you want to use it. You know, if we are too concerned with the existence of daily affairs, we drown in the details. And then on the other hand, if we direct our attention to non-existence, we end up ignoring everything. We end up not being a part of this beautiful chaos. We end up numb, unable to love, to be joyful, to express ourselves. Unable to see the preciousness of life. Or care for each other. Now the master relies in walking on the sharp edge of the sword. Where existence and non-existence are of no concern. You don't fall into non-existence or to existence. You keep that fine line. You keep that balance going. Chuang Tzu was telling of a story about two people. One of them was living in the city, going to lots of parties, I'm paraphrasing, hanging out, drinking a lot, having lots of fun. And then another guy, was living in a cave, meditating a lot, contemplating, going deep. And then he said, the city guy, the city dweller, got really sick and died of a disease. And then the cave dweller, the tiger, ate him. And then he said at the end that both of them forgot the sheep that was lagging behind. You know, it's like you're, you're herding sheep. Lots of them. I mean, you have to find ways to keep them together, skillfully. Using upaya, keep them together, keep it all together. One may be called form, one may be called formlessness, but they operate together. And we cannot see the pattern if we take one, two, three, five thousand threads out of it. There is no longer a pattern. At least not for us. Bodhidharma referred to this by saying, those who perceive the existence of and nature of phenomena and remain unattached, unattached, are liberated. Those who perceive the existence and nature of phenomena remain unattached and liberated. Those who perceive the external appearances of phenomena are at their mercy. 
So we have to see it. We have to see the entire picture. Not with our eyes, though. With our entire body. And then leave it alone. Practice while leaving it alone. It's called Jiyu Zanmai. The playfulness of Samadhi. The playfulness of Samadhi where you actualize the understanding, trusting that it's already operating in you. It's already happening. All that's left is trust. And from there, you act. And in that, in that, you go deeper. So again, 80% is good. Because it goes further and further and further. So that you may say that the 100% is being expressed. 80%. Still 100%. Still 100%. You know about that uh, donkey and the whale. My Zubarashi was once asked by, in an interview, if he thinks that scientists will ever understand the functioning of the brain. And he said no. He said, I think it's the brain using the scientists in order to understand itself. Very interesting. Kind of captures the the donkey looking at the whale and the whale looking at the donkey. Why is it so important? Why is it important that we practice? If it's like this from the get-go, if we are born like that, why is it so important? See, for, for it, it doesn't matter. Now, we, we show up for a little while in this form, we make a lot of noise, and we disappear again into wherever we came from and you know, a couple hundred years from now nobody will remember our names how we look like all the issues we have right now you know so why does it matter? It, it is very important to understand for one reason. If you do understand, then you don't create misery for ourselves and for others. We really don't. You know, to understand that we are not here and yet we function here. To understand non-existence and yet to, to function as existence is to not create complications. Why would you? Why would you? What would you gain from that? Nothing. We are free to care deeply. We are not so obsessed with ourselves, with our body, with our life, with our lifespan, with the way we feel, with what we think then we become free to attend to the sorrow and suffering of others. We free ourselves.
the moon is reflected in a dewdrop. You remember that they actually touch on this in the introductory of this koan. The moon in a dewdrop. The moon is reflected in all things. Moon is realization. It's reflected, oh Buddhahood, reflected in all things, big and small, in the same way, in the same manner. To understand that a drop is the ocean, to understand that there is no gap, you function as this one here, but this one here is everything else at the same time. That puts to rest the biggest issue of our lives. Fear. Just fear. If you look deeper, you see that underneath all the issues, all the complications, there is fear. The fear of not existing. And it's very interesting to see that that fear is the obstacle because when you see that the fear is born out of not realizing that there is no gap between form and formless, then the fear can lead you to realizing that you are already one with it. It is already happening. The pattern is distinct of itself. It's a beautiful pattern. And it's beautiful because we're unborn and undying and because we live and we die. Because we live for however many years we're around and then we die. And when we understand that we can live peacefully and die peacefully. And take none of it personally. I'd like to finish with another saying from Bodhidharma. He said, when you understand, reality depends on you. When you don't understand, you depend on reality. When reality depends on you, that which isn't real becomes real. When you depend on reality, that which is real becomes false. When you depend on reality, everything is false. When reality depends on you, everything is true.